Good morning, everyone. I feel so proud. It's Doc's Takeover Sunday. My name is Joe. I'm the director for youth ministries at EBF, so I get to lead Doc's. And, uh, and as you can see, uh, we are filled with some really incredible students, some really incredible followers of Christ. So it makes me very proud to kind of show them off for you this morning. The reason we, have, the reason we do Doc's Takeover Sundays is on purpose. It, it has intentionality. We, uh, a couple things, we want EBF to be, and it is, and I'm very proud of the fact that EBF is a place of open doors for students. If students want to get involved beyond youth group, involved in the daily, you know, the weekly activities, uh, the leadership, leading worship, helping out with children's ministries, ushering, all that kind of stuff, there's open doors. Even getting involved in ethos communities and, and other stuff like that. E- EBF is a place where students are welcome and, uh, and have opportunity in front of them to get involved. Um, and so we wanted this Sunday to be a, a good day for students to just try something new, to get involved, to break out, and to, to experience helping to lead church on Sunday morning. So um, the other reason is we want you to see them. We meet on Sunday nights in a different b- building, and so sometimes it's easy, if you're not involved directly in docs, to forget that they even exist, um, that we have this thriving little community of believers um, right here within EBF that, uh, that love the Lord, that are worshiping God together and uh, are growing in faith. And I just want to get them in front of you and show them off and say, there's some really incredible young believers in our church. And, uh, and please cheer them on. Please support them and be encouraging to them as they are continuing to grow in their faith and, uh, and are a, a crucial part of our, our congregation. So, so we do take over Sunday. Um, and now I get, to, I get to preach this morning too. I get to bring the word. And I get to choose this week whatever I wanted to preach on. And, uh, and I chose the topic of prayer, focusing on Nehemiah's prayer in, uh, in Nehemiah chapter 1. And I want to be clear about why I chose to, to preach on prayer. The reason is simple. I need this. I need this. I needed to take some time to think about prayer, to process prayer, um, to evaluate my own prayer life because I know that I am not content with my prayer life. I'm not satisfied with what it is. I know that it's not what it could be. And I want to work on that. I just, I needed this opportunity to process that. So this sermon is really about me and what I wanted to think about and teach on today. Um, and just to give you a few I'm going to list a few things, bad habits that I've formed around prayer that I often do in regards to prayer, just in case you can relate. One of the things that I do in prayer, one of my bad habits, is, uh, is basically mechanical prayers. Praying without really thinking very deeply about it, praying without much heart, just going through the motions, sort of formulaic, just praying the same way every time without much spirit involved. Just, I just get in a rut where I just pray these mechanical prayers because I'm not really engaging in it. Some of my other bad habits include long, wordy prayers. Like I'll just pray and ramble on for a while, kind of saying all the things, hoping one of them is what God wants to hear. It's like, like searching for a light switch in the dark. You just touch every spot on the wall until you get the one that flips the switch. Uh, that, those, that can describe some of my prayers, just going on and saying all the words, hoping that God likes some of them. Um, praying only when other people are around. Praying only when there's others 
in my presence that I know I'm kind of obligated to pray at then. And so just praying in groups and then when I go home, forgetting completely. Um, praying just a series of requests or demands, kind of like a ransom note prayer, just asking for everything and, th- and then saying nothing else, just, just praying requests and that's it. And, th- and then the, the last one that's probably the one I'm most ashamed about it is, is just absent prayers. It's, it's surprising how long I can go without praying, without engaging with the Lord. How this, the, the length of time, the days, the weeks, the months that I can go without, without any real prayer activity in my life. And I want something different. I want, I want it to be different for me. We, uh, my wife, Bethany, and I, we, we work for a ministry called Royal Servants. And for that ministry, we lead summer mission trips. And so we spent our last seven summers in Nepal. And, uh, and we, we really have loved being able to do ministry in Nepal. And, uh, and one of the things, one of the many things I love about going there is getting to know some of the long-term missionaries that live there. Um, and, and just being able to sort of get to know them and learn more about their life there and what it's like to be a full-time missionary in Nepal. And it's really difficult. It's really complicated. And not because Nepal is not a wonderful place to be, but just everything is hard. Nothing comes easy. Simple tasks take all day. And so it just, it just grinds you down because it's just this arduous, like doing simple things just wears you out every day. And, uh, and so one of, some of the missionaries that we know that they invite us to join them for their daily prayer sessions that they have. And they invited us and our whole team of students. So we brought everybody to their, their prayer times. And they do this six days a week. Six days a week, they spend two to four hours in prayer. And, and every, every week, without fail, it's constantly, they all show up. And they don't even always have to show up to everyone, but they do because they crave it, because they want it. And I, I, I was so moved when we got to spend time praying on, alongside these long-term missionaries and seeing the intensity and the passion and the depth with which they prayed moved me and impressed me. And it made me jealous of them because I just saw them. And I was like, I want to pray like that all the time. Not just once in a while. I want to pray like that six days a week, every day. I want, I want that sense of urgency. And really the difference, I think, between me and them is they craved it because they needed that prayer. They needed that intimacy, that connection with God every day in order to survive their lives, in order to get from day to day, in order to avoid being burnt out and worn down. They craved it. They were desperate for those times of prayer, and they fed off of it. And that's what I want for my life. So in that effort, I want to examine some prayer, uh, hopefully just to glean some ideas from some very biblical, very profound prayers um, in order to just add, to try to emulate what these biblical prayers do, to bring some of these important elements into our prayer life, and hopefully that we can get that. Hopefully we can find a deeper and richer prayer life from this. So I'm going to read out of, uh, out of Nehemiah. 411, and I also want to, I want to lead out with a question too. And I'll, I don't think I'll actually be able to answer this question completely, but I think we can get some help, um, some clues as to how to answer this question. The question is, are, adver- are comfort and safety the adversaries of prayer? Are comfort and safety the adversaries of prayer? Let's read Nehemiah, and here's, 
because it's a prayer, let's do this. Let's make it our opening prayer. I'll read it, and let's just go to God in prayer as I read through it, okay? Let's pray. Nehemiah 1, 4 through 11. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people. Whom have you redeemed by your whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Amen. That's Nehemiah's prayer. I'm also going to highlight a few other prayers, but I'm not going to read them in their entirety. I want to highlight Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9. I want to highlight the Lord's prayer in Matthew 6. Um, I also want to highlight Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2. And, uh, and if I have time, which I probably won't, I, there's one more I want to stick in there. But we'll, we'll see if that happens. But I want to highlight now from these prayers, I want to, I want to glean three elements that are included in these prayers that I think we can include in ours that have a good shot of making them richer prayers, better prayers, and more rewarding prayers for us and, and help us connect with God better. The first one is perspective. The first element I want to examine is perspective. Nehemiah's perspective, as he goes to God with a huge request that he's, he's got to do something, is profound. Praying with perspective is praying with clear understanding of who God is and what he promises he's made. Nehemiah's first reaction to the terrible news, the news is that Jerusalem is a mess. The walls are in disrepair, and the, what few... Uh, what a few Jews, what few Israelites are there are, are about to be wiped out. Um, and all of the rest of Israel is just spread out and dispersed. And it's all their own fault. It's all because of their own idolatry and because they, they weren't following the law. They got dispersed. And so now it's coming to a point where it's so bad, Israel is on the, on the precipice of disaster. And Nehemiah finds out the news that the, the walls are, are crumbling. And, uh, and he knows in order to... Um, to reestablish, to restore Israel. Those walls got to get fixed, and Israel needs to be brought back, and that is a monumental thing. So much has to happen. But his first reaction is to go to God in prayer. And in this prayer, he says a lot of incredible things, but throughout the prayer, he says things like, O Lord God of heaven, or great and awesome God, or by your great power and your strong hand. And he refers to himself repeatedly as your servant. It's as if to Nehemiah, 
the perspective with which he prays is as important as the request itself. The perspective with which he prays is as important as what he's asking for. Being sure that he demonstrates that he humbles himself honestly and exalts God completely is demonstrating faith. And he knows that God is going to listen to that. It's also true, this also happens, we see it in, uh, with Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2. Hannah has been given Samuel. She prayed to God for, for a son, for a child, and he gave her a son in Samuel. And she cannot stop gushing about it. She cannot stop gushing about God. She says things like, in verse 1, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. Verse 2, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Verse 3, For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him all actions are weighed. And it goes on and on, the whole prayer. She's gushing about God. She is so in love with him and so grateful for what he's done um, that because he granted her prayer request, he gave her what she asked for, and, and she can't stop praising him for it. The Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 teaches us to revere God with the statements, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, and earth it is in, as it is in heaven. Daniel 9, Daniel's Prayer. Israel's in a similar situation. They're on the brink of disaster. They're dispersed, and something has to be done. And it falls on Daniel to have to intercede on behalf of Israel to try to restore Israel to the Lord. So he does the same thing as Nehemiah. He goes to God in prayer. First thing he does. He pleads with God in Daniel 9 for mercy. And he literally litters his prayers with statements like, verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. Verse 8, the Lord, to the Lord belongs mercy and forgiveness. And verse 14, for the Lord our God is righteous in all that he has done. The list goes on. He, he gushes like, like Hannah, just says all kinds of things, just praising God. And this is it, in a moment of terrible crisis. He will not stop saying, praising God and saying great things about God. Praising God's name calling out the many great things about him and recounting his promises that he's made throughout Scripture is not manipulative. It's not kissing up. It's not a trick to get God to get you more favor. It's calling to mind what's true and what's real in your life. It's stating the facts and letting those facts inform and influence everything you're praying about and thinking about. It's not letting your momentary perceptions dominate how you process your circumstances. Instead, it's letting the truth about God dominate how you process your circumstances. Let me offer an example. If I were to trip and stumble off the stage right now in front of you and fall on the floor, not out of the realm of possibility, I would be embarrassed, and my prayer might sound like, God, why have you allowed me to embarrass myself at this very important moment in front of all these people? How could you let me do that? Or I could pray, God, you somehow managed to keep me from tripping and stumbling and embarrassing myself a thousand times a day, every day. 
And so the fact that it happened to me this one time is probably not the result of you bringing this experience into my life, but really me bringing it upon myself. You are a great and almighty God. I am a klutz. That would be an example of praying with perspective, letting the truth about God inform and dominate how we process our circumstances as we pray to him. Perspective can be expressed by naming God's attributes, just listing them and calling them out. It can be expressed by, by uh, naming the things for which you're thankful for, by expressing gratitude and thankfulness to God. And also by identifying yourself with humility, acknowledging who you are before God. So if you're like me and you want richer prayers... Humble yourself and acknowledge the greatness of God and name the things for which he deserves prayer. That's praying with perspective. Okay, we're going to do an activity as we go. We're going to apply the message as I preach it, okay? Um, so I, I'm, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write some things down. You can do it on your phone, even the YouVersion app. You can plug in notes on there, right, with each point. Um, you can just flip over your bulletin on the back and the clear, open side. And I'm just going to give you, suggest some things that I want you to write down that are specific to you. Um, and then we're going to do this with each point. Um, because what we're doing is we're going to build a prayer off of this. We're going to build a prayer off of these principles, okay? So here's what I want you to write down. Here's the first thing. I want you to write down three statements of perspective. One statement should be a statement about what makes God so great in your eyes. You can be really opinionated about this. What makes God so great in your eyes? And it can be, keep it simple, keep it quick. Um, you can elaborate later if you want, but just a statement about what makes God so great in your eyes. Another statement about what you are thankful for, something you are thankful for. And the, the third a statement of humility. A statement of who you are before God. Keep it simple. It doesn't have to be, be elaborate, but just those three statements. I just want you to write down three statements, okay? You can keep working on that if you want. I'm going to press on because um, we're going to add some more to that. Um, but here we go. Okay, so that's praying with perspective. The next thing we want to do, the next element we want to examine is praying with confession. Praying with confession. Nehemiah asked God to hear his prayers and then launches into a confession. In verse 6, he confesses the sins of the people of Israel with which we have sinned against you. And then he goes on to admit, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So Nehemiah offers a two-part confession. He confesses, confesses on behalf of Israel as a whole, and he confesses on behalf of himself. It's honest. It's humble. It does not point fingers at anyone, but instead it assumes full responsibility onto himself. Daniel's prayer is like it, but way more confession happens. I'm going to read an excerpt for you uh, out of Daniel chapter 9, verses 5 through 10. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your, your commandments and rules. 
We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. So, Daniel's prayer, loaded with confession. That's just an excerpt. The whole prayer is like that. It's loaded with confession. Because Daniel is urgently trying to restore Israel and trying to repair their relationship with God. And he, like Nehemiah, sees the connection between their sin and the terrible situation that they're in. They know Israel is nearing disaster. And now they're taking it upon themselves, or really it's falling upon them, to restore Israel's relationship with God. And the fact that they're trying to do this by starting with confession is not a guess. It's not a gamble. They know. They know what God, that God foreshadowed this. They know that God told them this would happen, and he told them exactly how it needed to be fixed. Um, and, and I'll show you an example. If you look at Nehemiah 1.4. Sorry, 1.5. Nehemiah 1.5. All right, I want you to look at the verse Nehemiah 1.5. I'm going to read Daniel 9.4 while you look at Nehemiah 1.5. says, I pray to the Lord my God and make confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. They're almost identical. They, they lead into their prayers with basically the same thing. They make the same statement. And it's not an accident. It's not, it's not coincidence. They know what God promised. They know what scripture says and that God said this was going to happen. And he knows they know what he said would have to happen and how it would go. And what they're really referencing is two other passages, Deuteronomy 4 and Levit- Leviticus 26. In both cases, God says, if you commit idolatry, if you break the law, I'm paraphrasing, of course, I'm going to disperse you. You are going to be you know, sent out. You're going to lose your land. You're going to lose your status. And horrible things are going to happen. Everything is going to fall apart if you can't keep my law. And then what's going to happen? You're going to come begging for me, begging me for forgiveness. You're going to have to confess. You're going to have to repent. And then what's going to happen? I'm going to forgive you. And I'm going to restore you. That's a promise God made to Israel back with, with Moses. And they're calling on that now. Nehemiah and Daniel both. They're acknowledging, okay, what you said was right. You said if we break our covenant, if we break the law, we are going to we're going to be dispersed. It's going to be disaster. But you're not going to break your covenant. And if we repent, and if we ask for forgiveness, you're going to keep your covenant, and you're going to restore us. You're going to forgive us. They're calling on that. They're calling on that promise. And they know that the process starts with confession. That's how it had to be initiated. Now, I think this applies to us as well. I was, uh, when I was in high school, 
I, uh, I grew up in the church. So I did all the youth events. I did all the, the special Christian events, all the rallies and everything. Uh, I, w- I attended many, many, many uh, altar calls. And, uh, and many, many times when people would say, like, okay, everyone bow your heads, we're going to confess. And I want you to confess. I want you to search. And, uh, a common one was, I want you to seek, search out the cobwebs of your soul and, uh, and find whatever sins is dwelling around there and clean it out. And um, all true. Um, but I asked my youth pastor one time, at the time, I just said, if, if God forgives our sins, if Jesus forgives our sins once and for all, when we come to Christ, at, when we become saved, aren't our sins forgiven all, from then on? Do we have to keep confessing? Do we have to keep going back to God? Doesn't he already know? Doesn't he already forgive our sins? Why, what is the purpose of confession now? And he explained it to me like this. He said, Job, I want you to imagine that you're married. That you're married, you meet the woman of your dreams, and you married her. Little did you know, it happened. Anyways, the next part doesn't happen. The rest of this hypothetical is not, does not apply. Anyways, he says, so imagine then, some, at some point in your marriage, you cheat on her. You have an affair. You commit adultery. Again, this part not true. Um, and she finds out about it. And you know what she does? She decides she's going to forgive you because she wants to save the marriage. She decides, first thing is that she's going to forgive you because she wants to make the marriage work. But knowing that, you never bother to even acknowledge that it happened. You don't ever bring it up. You don't ever admit it. You don't confess it to her. You don't talk it through with her. Because you know she's, she's going to forgive you. You decide not to ever mention it because you don't want to have the uncomfortable conversation. He says, let me tell you, Job, how does that, conversa- how does that marriage go? Is that going to last long? I said, of course not. That is not a marriage. That is not a good relationship. That is not a happy relationship. That's miserable. That sounds terrible. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to have that. Because there's no way that's resolved. There's no way that's dealt with. There's no way there's trust restored in that kind of marriage. There's no way there's intimacy restored in that kind of marriage. And the same same is true in our relationship with the Lord. Yes, he forgives us. And he's resolved to forgive us. But if what we want is not just a ticket out of hell. What we want is relationship with him. We want closeness with God. We want to feel his affection we want to feel loved by him and to be able to express our love completely. And sin is what gets in the way, and that's why we keep confessing over and over and over again. Because we want that closeness with God. We want to restore our relationship. We want it to grow. We want it to flourish. We want to be close with God. First John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We want that. And I would also add that the sin that does interrupt our relationship with God, it's supposed to. When you feel bad and miserable about your sin, you're supposed to feel bad and miserable about sin. If you feel guilty and ashamed of your sin, you're supposed to feel guilty and ashamed of your sin. That's how sin works. That's the effect that it has, and it's meant to. Uh, Psalm fifty-one, seventeen, and we're going to put this up uh, because I want you to see it. I want it to. I want it, Yeah, I want your eyes on it. It says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. The freedom and 
from guilt, the freedom from that shame that we want comes after confession. So when we feel bad, that's kind of actually a good thing when you feel guilty and ashamed of your sin. You're supposed to, and it's when you stop feeling guilty about your sin, when you stop feeling the brokenness from your sin, that's when you should be worried. That's when you're in trouble because you become numb and you become so distant and so insensitive to your sin um, that, that it's going to take a lot more work um, to restore that. But, but God wants us to feel bad of our sins, and then he wants us to confess it and to bring it to him, and then to let that shame and that guilt go and not carry that with us. If you want to undo the damage that's been done by sin to your relationship with God, confession. So if you're like me and you want richer prayers, see confession as an opportunity to repair a broken relationship with the Lord. Confessing of sin to God demonstrates contrition and faith in God's mercy. So we're going to write down our next thing. We're going to add to our prayer that we're building, and you can guess. It's a confession. I want you to write down a statement of confession. Keep it simple. Keep it private if you want. But I want you to write down a statement of confession. And we're going to add that to the prayer that we're building. Okay? Continuing on, the next thing that I want to highlight, the next element that we see in these people's prayers, is pleading. Pleading. I like the term pleading more than I like the, the term request. A prayer request feels so polite and dignified, but pleading is so much more desperate and urgent. It sounds a lot like the tone that we see in some of these biblical prayers, and I'll, I'll highlight some again. Nehemiah's plea in verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delights to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. It's one request that he's asking for. He wants success. He wants God to start this, to give them success as he sets out to try to help restore Israel. Um, and a lot needs to happen, but that's, that's his request is success. It's simple, it's straightforward, it's one verse at the end of that whole prayer. Daniel's plea comes in verse 16. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill. And then verse 17. Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for, the, for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. And verse 18. Incline your, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. Daniel's begging God not to let Israel perish, not to let Jerusalem be destroyed, begging him. And he, that, again, that's all the way through that whole prayer. And even in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It is good to make your requests known to God. He wants it. He, you can ask God anything. He wants you to ask, and he's completely committed to hearing your prayers. If you're in need, if you are in need, scream your requests to God. Plead your case with him. With all the urgency you can muster, let him hear the desperation and the dependency that you have for his provision. It's good. Beg him. And I think one thing that happens when we do is we not only get to we get, make sure God hears our prayers, but it, it reminds ourselves 
that we really are that dependent on God. We really do need him this much. So plead with God. And don't let me request your own. Plead on behalf of others as often as you can. Make it a normal thing to include others in your pleading, whether they ask you to or not, whether it comes by a request or whether you just feel or want to pray for somebody because you care for them. Be a person who pleads on others' behalf. So if you, like me, want richer prayers, whether it's forgiveness, blessing, or help in need, make your requests known to God. Plea for them. He wants to keep his promises as much as you need him to. All right, let's add to our prayer. So far, we've written down a statement about what might makes God so great in your eyes, a statement about something you're thankful for, a statement of humility where you stand before him. You've written down a confession of sin. And now I've got two more things we're going to add to that. One, I want you to write down someone that you want to pray for today, someone who would least expect it. For this time, I want you to pray for somebody who has no idea you would even be willing to pray for them. I want you to write down the name of that person. And then I want you to write down a plea for mercy and name what you are hoping God will do next in your life. A plea for mercy and name what you are hoping God will do next in your life. I realize that's hard to keep it simple and quick. That's a big one. But try your best. So I do, I want to highlight one last prayer comes out of Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Jesus is saying parables. He also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, executioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithe of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Perspective, confession, pleading. In a one-line prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Your prayers don't have to be impressive. They don't have to be long. They don't have to be elaborate. They don't have to be poetic. You just have to know who you're praying to and show up. Start. Don't give up. Don't let that well dry up in your life. Prayer brings you life. It draws you to God. And if it's been a while for you, if you struggle with feeling too ashamed to come before God in such a vulnerable way or too inept at doing it the right way or the best way or too busy to have time for it or like me, sometimes you just forget because for some reason it's not enough of a priority. Do it anyways. Find a way and start. Just start. Initiate. 
So I'll ask one last time, our safety and comfort the adversaries of prayer. I think in part, I think they are at times, or to some degree. But the truth behind that, the real truth in that, is that if you're not seeking God, if you're not praying to him, you won't stay safe and comfortable for long anyway. Because you're getting farther away from him. The safety and comfort, the real safety and comfort that we need is closeness with God. It's God himself. So there's no need to wait until your circumstances get desperate or until crisis starts. Just pray now. Pray often. Pray with perspective. Pray with confession. Plead your case to God. So here's what we're going to do. You've created a prayer. I've created a prayer following these, these three elements. And this isn't a model. This isn't a, a, a method or, or you know, a format or formula that you have to follow. But these are just things that can help make our prayers better, richer. And so I've, I've created a prayer. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this in this prayer. Um, and then I'm going to leave some time, some space of quietness and stillness. And I want you to pray through your prayer. And then I'll close us, okay? Heavenly Father, you are a God who is completely faithful, and you have never broken a single promise you've made to us. You created this world. You created us. You have called us to be in relationship with you. You have raised up your church. You have given us your son and showered us with grace and mercy many times over. You are just. You are right. You are perfect. We are thankful for every time you have intervened in our lives to keep us from falling back into sin and to keep us following you. As individuals, we are not strong enough to earn your favor, but instead you've given it to us out of your own great mercy. This morning, we confess that it is easy to be distracted by flashy things and impulsiveness. We are prone to justifying our sins as being culturally acceptable or gray areas, accidental or unintentional. We hide from you when we know we've done wrong and sinned against you. We spend too much time carrying with us the guilt and the shame of our transgressions when we should be confessing them to you. Too often we choose comfort over sacrifice, shame over confidence, timidity over courage. So we ask again for even more mercy so that we would not drift away from you, but instead we'll be a church filled with people who are falling deeper in love with you. Let us be examples of faith so that others would come to know you as well. We plead with you for wisdom, for perseverance, and for boldness as we are a church who represents you and your gospel in our community. You are the God of our salvation. We love you. Your turn.